Welcome back to The Radical. I'm Nick Turzo. This week's show is a little off the normal path for me. My guest is the author of the book, All Excess, Occupation Concert Promoter. In this new book, he takes us deep into his experiences promoting over 10,000 rock concerts. We discuss how the live touring business could greatly contribute to the logistics of mass COVID vaccinations, what the future holds for both independent promoters and the live touring business, and how creativity is used not only to sell concert tickets, but to build a business. This week's guest is concert promoter turned author, Danny Zalisco. Up next, my chat with Danny Zalisco. Hello, Danny. Welcome. What's up, Nick? How are you today? I'm uh, I'm great. Uh, by the magic of Zoom, here we are. Yeah, I'm very happy to have you. You just authored a new book about your career called All Excess Occupation Concert Promoter. Right. <laughs> and I emphasize the excess. Well, so do I. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, it was hard coming up with the name. I mean, you know, you don't want to be too cute or too trendy or anything like that. Um, I, I, I liked the all excess thing for a while and partly because I had that picture that I put on the cover. I've had that picture for over 30 years and I never called it by any name or anything. But what I did do was I remember the feeling I had when somebody delivered me 40 grand in cash in a cassette box. You know, that was one of my favorite moments and, and it was truly excessive. It, it was the parking money from a Pink Floyd show. You know, I mean, usually promoters don't get involved in parking. It's usually the venue. But in this case, I could do whatever I wanted. And, and it was a very late addition to uh, what, what our responsibilities were for the show. And I actually ended up making more on the parking than I did on the concert. Uh, go figure. Who cares? I don't care. <laughs> Who cares? You know, as long as it generated something. I mean, it was a lot of work and a lot of stress. Um, but uh, it's nice to get paid once in a while. Well, before we get into the book, you know, it's been a tough, tough year for the live business and the touring business and, you know, economically killed so many people um, and hurt them so badly. What's your overview of the future and like where the concert industry is going to end up in a year or two? Well, you know, within a couple of years, it better be back to normal. I mean, it, now it's just figuring when could it happen in the near future. When this thing first hit us in March, obviously no one, and I mean no one, especially those that should have been prepared for this thing. I mean, how can we be prepared if the people in charge aren't, aren't prepared? So, and this isn't about pointing fingers and getting into all the political crap. It's just there was a serious miscue there by the whole Washington, D.C., and, and, and maybe it wasn't everybody, but the result was disastrous. And we're, and we're still paying for, for that mistake and all those oversights and all that blustering and crap that was going on. You know, um, when you're not prepared, this is what happens. It would be like if we didn't order stagehands for a show and Lady Gaga comes moving in at 6 a.m. and there's no stagehands. Oops. <laughs> Who knew? You know, I mean, it's very similar type of an oversight. Um, so I um, I think that if if this, you know, the the, the testing uh, stuff that's going on, the, the rapid tests that they've been developing, I think that's key to it. I, I mean, all along what I've been saying is 
if you can determine that somebody's carrying the stuff, um, you should be able you should be able to treat them, of course. But the first thing you know is whether they're positive or negative. When they're negative, they get the vaccine, which is going to start happening. When they're positive, they got to get help. But in order to go to a concert, I mean, if if a, if a bunch of people are going out, say a thousand people to a, a music hall, and you have rapid testing, I mean, if you got a mask for now, and you and you have a test, I'm going into the building and enjoying a show. As long as I know the stagehands, the hall people, everybody have gone through this current test, I'll go to a show. And, and as time goes on, things will loosen up again, and, and this will pass, and we won't have to wear masks, and we can start hugging and kissing again. Uh, I look forward to that. In the meantime, I'm, I'm kind of, you know, I miss all that. Um, or, or, you know, you, you, it's your immediate Im- impulse is to grab somebody, and you really got to stop yourself these days because you just never know. And it, that whole thing is really spooky and, and scary. So. Um, I mean, first things first, you know, uh, they they have to make it, they have to figure out, people smarter than me have to figure out how to make us all feel safe around each other so we can go to church or a grocery store or wherever it is we like to go, restaurants, much less concerts where, where there's more concentrated amount of people together. Um, it'll happen. And when it does, it's going to be magic and it's going to be explosive and it's going to be so much fun. It's kind of like, you know, in this case, it's kind of like like waiting for another Christmas. And, you know, I mean, there is a Christmas this year, but uh, uh, it's not quite the same if you can have the parties and, and all that stuff. But you know what? Just relax. We can do without all the frivolity in the midst of all this going on. And let's let's get healthy and, and, and get back to work. Right. And so to someone, look, there's been a couple of suggestions that, people in the event business would be fantastic at actually coming up with the mechanism of applying vaccinations or like in a large group setting, you know, whether people come to a stadium, an arena. I mean, have you had any consultation with the state of Arizona on any of the stuff going forward? You know, I, I, I'd love, I'd love for these guys to get like Opie and Jake Berry and, my Nick Treadwells and Nigel Buckley put these guys in a room and say, get out of the way, you know, because that's what they do. They run day in and day out armies every day of their lives somewhere in the world. I mean, they've come up against the most, you know, incredible situations here. Put up a show in here in Russia, you know, or someplace that's not used to having, you know, let's do a show at the pyramids. You know, it's like, it seems like dispensing this should be some, it's got to be very militaristic in the, in the sense of how it just flows. And it's like one step, another step, another, you can't have anybody with a flat tire there. Right. You know? And the people's names you mentioned for my listeners are top notch touring professionals and production guys that run these hugest tours in the world around the world. I, so. I, I mean, yeah, I mean, the Stones and U2 and Bon Jovi and Guns N' Roses. I mean, these guys run the giantest stadium shows. They put 70,000 people or more into a stadium and, and they set it all up and they tear it all down and they rotate different stages and crews. I mean, it, it's, it is amazing what these guys do. So it, it can be done. All of this stuff can be done. And those are the kind of guys, frankly, I think that should be in charge because they're, 
they're so used to being up against the wall and deadlines, right? It's not a, I mean, we got an eight o'clock show, period. You got to go, babe. Right. You know, and that's what makes them the way they are. And they're fierce warriors. Right. So before we get, again, get into the book too deeply, I wanted to just, for people listening, um, you know, mostly I've spoken to artists, right? Since I've started this podcast. So, and speaking to a concert promoter, it's a different game. Um, so could you kind of just lay out a little bit, like what are like your responsibilities, like in your kind of day-to-day world, say you're doing an arena show, uh, what, what's, what's your world about? Well, my day-to-day world nine months ago, <laughs> you know, it, it, it starts with, it starts with the music. It starts, it starts with the attraction, the band, the singer, and, and they decide to tour. And fortunately I've managed to stay on a lot of people's call lists, um, uh, so when they come through the Southwest, they're going to call me and hopefully they think of me first for, for a lot of the bands. Things have changed over the years. Uh, as a nobody, I built uh, myself and, and the company I started called Evening Star into a, a, a world-class promotion firm that I sold to SFX and then they passed it over to Clear Channel with one of the dumbest moves in the world. And then when they got out of it, you know, they, they kind of gave it to what became Live Nation. I lasted there five years. So for almost the last 10 years, I've been back on my own again, where where I belong and where I should be. No, no disrespect to anybody, but I like the way I do things better than they do. Uh, you know, it, but it's it's so much different. You know, I mean, I, I don't. I don't have the responsibility of jillions of dollars and Ticketmaster and, you know, and, and, and all the big offices and the, and all that stuff that they do. I, I, I enjoy where, where it's at right now, but, but my role is to deliver the entertainment, work with the halls in, in each town that we do shows, advertise it, make sure the tickets get sold, make sure those stage hands are there on time and put on a show. It, it, it's basically everything A to Z, from the time that I announce a show and you buy a ticket, I hope. Uh, and, and, and then, but, but the bottom line is I don't want you as the customer, as the ticket buyer to be involved in any of the grief or minutia that we go through. I want you to pay whatever it is you're paying, not knowing or caring what we had to go through to deliver that show on time. That's my problem. That's why I, promoted it and sold you a ticket. That's not for you to bear that burden as the customer. I want you just to go there and have a good time. You're in the middle and you make it seamless for the fan, which is the way it should be and enjoyable and safe for the fan. Um, But it's interesting that you had the corporate experience, but the fact of the matter is most of the great promoters like you have been independent kind of mavericks, kind of with your own personalities, your own styles, your own understanding that marketplace so intimately um, and it's kind of been a lost art. So it's interesting that you're back independently. I think, you know, there, there's a lot of people out there in all different walks of life that do what I did. They have their own businesses. They're small businesses by comparison to the big businesses. But what happens with every everything that ever gets good or popular or necessary or fun? Like take the corner uh, drugstore. Take the corner deli. Um, all, all of a sudden, McDonald's comes along, and, and Burger King, and and a lot of the independent food places go by the wayside because they can't compete with with their product, even though it might be better. Doesn't matter. 
Um, same thing with the drugstore. Suddenly you got CVS and Walgreens, you know, and then you got Costco and Walmart, and then you got Live Nation. It's the same thing. It's like when something organically starts and it's going and it's growing and people dig it and it gets more and more necessary and popular to everybody's daily life. Well, there's going to be somebody with some money that comes along and says, well, let's blow this up and make it even bigger and make it better. Well, it doesn't always make it better, but it does make it bigger. And, 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 and again, to any of those companies I just said, no problem. They do a great job too. They deliver stuff that we all need. But, you know, it's like I was saying at the beginning, as things become more needed and known about, there's always an opportunist that's going to want to, you know, get in there and, and show, it, show us all how it's done because they have the money to invest in order to do that. And that's what creates right, right. rich people. But we all know music isn't hamburgers. Um, that's why, you know, the independent guys have a better feel for it, in my personal opinion, and can present a better experience in a lot of cases well they definitely have a better feel for it when when the bands start i mean well a lot of the independent guys out there either own or have arrangements with smaller rooms up to say a thousand fifteen hundred capacity um where where they're seeing right out of the box they're seeing uh, and hearing music that most normal people aren't hearing until they, they decide they like it and bring it in concert somewhere and try to promote it and get through to people and make them understand why this is the new cool thing. Um, and, and sometimes, as you know, uh, you know, maybe that first time around you draw 50 or 100 people or 300 people out of 700 people, but they turn out they're great. You don't lose too much money on the show promoting them at this at this stage and you look forward to the next time and hopefully they were so good the word of mouth makes a difference and the next time around you got a full house and 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 it's kind of like it grows you know and and, and if a band's if they suck or if they're difficult to deal with or or they showed promise but kind of failed well they go by the wayside and and then the strong survive the talent wins so on to the book all excess uh, why now? I mean, other than you having maybe some time on your hands this year because of the touring business, but was this in the works prior to this year? I've always thought about it. I've always been urged to do it because, you know, think about it. You know, I mean, in the 80s and the 90s and into the 2000s, we were doing between three and 500 shows a year. Think about that. Multiply that out. And, and that's a lot of shows. We had some days where we had six, seven shows in a day. In a day. Um, I mean, most people are lucky to have seven in a month. Like now for me, I mean, if I, if I have, you know, I'm doing 125 shows or so per year now, or I was. Um, and, uh, you know, the, it, it, it's, I mean, it's mind boggling when I think about it. But there, this, when I look at a, a picture, I hear a song, or I, or I open a, I open my closet, and there's rock T-shirts all over the place. Um, it reminds me of those shows. It reminds me of what happened. I mean, all day long, I am reminded about everything that goes on, and a lot of them are, are really fun, good, heartwarming stories, fun things, funny things uh, that have happened, and. 
and it, it takes a certain type of character to try to share those. Um, and when I say that, it, it's more than I am. I, it's so much work writing and editing and, and placing photos. Uh, Tondra here in the next room saved the, the day here and, and really uh, finished it strong. I mean, all the, all the resources, all the material was there, but then you got to physically do it. And, and, and I mean, that was probably as hard as, as coming up with the memories and writing the words down themselves. So about four years ago, a little more than four years ago, I was watching Shark Tank one night. And, and my friend Bill Walton was on uh, pushing somebody's product. I can't remember what it was. I don't even know if it worked. I never talked to him about it, but I watched the show. And this guy came on afterwards and, and he had a ghostwriting business. So I called him the next day. Nice guy. One thing led to another. We made a deal and, and he started helping me put this together. And, and the hardest thing about it, and probably why I didn't start long before, which I really wish I would have. I, I really wish I'd been keeping a journal all these years. So you never journaled. You never did. Anything. Oh, no, 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 no. But I always had the backstage paths or the tickets or the files or the photos and the guitars and the stuff to remind me of all the things that happened. I could never possibly tell all the stories. I mean, after over 10,000 shows, it's insane. But, but picking out some of those good ones and, and then, Maybe the ones that are a little bit more on the popular side, at least for my first attempt at it, I, I want to draw as many eyes, you know, to the to this as possible. So, you know, it's like a name dro name dropper convention between the Beatles and the Dead and Motley and Scorpions and John Prine and Bill Graham and Alice Cooper and Shep Gordon, and it goes on and on. I got sixty chapters of headliners, man, <laughs> and. And, and it's fun to talk about them, not to drop those names and not to brag about them because it ain't bragging. They're my friends or these things really happened. And, and I, I, would, I would love to be the fly on the wall that I got to be if I was somebody else who, who bought concert tickets or bought a lot of records, was really into music. People like all the background stuff, behind the scenes stuff. And, and it's fun. And, and it's always been fun for me to show people that. Like if I could bring a friend backstage to a show sometime or have him drive with me to show and pull into the backstage and we park right next to the door and we walk in, Hey, how you doing? Every, you know, it's like, it's one of the greatest feelings in the world. And, and I'm hoping with this book, that's what I'm conveying to people. Well, it's bigger than president Obama's book. I think so you've, you hasn't, it. Sold, <laughs> hasn't sold as many, baby. You'll get there. You'll get there. Oh, that Barack boy. He's, Rock's a tough one to be. <laughs> so you grew up in Chicago, kind of like a sports obsessed kid. I mean, is that what started some of the collections, some of the interesting paths to, to, to being interested in like this? I mean, was it sports and music or sports first? Sports. It was, it was really sports first. Music was always around, but I didn't pay attention to it as a thing the way I did with baseball and football. We had the Chicago Bears and the White Sox and the Cubs. The White Sox won the World Series in 1959, which is now 61 years ago. And I'm here to tell you I remember it. <laughs> I mean, which which I find insane, okay? Um, you know, I saw Hugh Grant on TV last night, and he's six years younger than me, and he looks 20 years older. So good for you, Hugh. Enjoy yourself, bro. Um, but I, I learned how to read off of baseball cards. 
um, just to keep up with my two older brothers because they they could do it and I couldn't. It was very frustrating for them to look at something going, what are you guys doing? We're reading. You know, you learn how to read. Um, So by the time the White Sox came around, I was maybe five. And uh, and a couple years later, um, you know, music entered into life. We were we were listening to these radio stations, AM stations in Chicago, because it was really before FM radio grabbed hold, you know, which was later in the 60s and then into the 70s. So the only the only way we could hear music was on AM radio. But the AM radio of then compared to FM radio now was like underground radio. When you look at what was on the air at one time, you'd go Frank Sinatra to Bubble Puppy in the same hour. You know, Dean Martin and and the Jefferson Airplane and the Doors, you know, and uh, can't get used to losing you, Stephen Eady. I mean, on the same station. And and we loved it. It was just all entertainment. It was all just good music. And then, like I was talking about with the Circle K's and the Walmarts and all that, well, then big shots get involved with money. And suddenly somebody's deciding what you're going to listen to and what you can't listen to on the public airwaves. When we had all of these groups at the beginning of their careers in the mid-60s, getting all of this valuable airplay on free radio, you didn't have to pay to hear it. You turned it on your car. Sure, it was a crummy speaker. It was AM radio. We didn't know what FM was, but we got to hear the kinks and the Beatles and the Stones and the Dave Clark Five. One song after Manfred Mann, Do-Wah-Diddy, Come on, for free, out of nowhere, boom, there she was, right? I mean, I can see for miles. I remember when I can I can see for miles came out as a 45, it was a single, and it got played on this radio station 20 times a day. That's what broke the who. That's what broke all of these bands to this day. They're, 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 it's amazing how, how big they are and their staying power, despite people dying, breaking up screwing up, doing dumb things, and also doing right things like writing, I can see for miles. You know, uh, it, it, it's sensational. These days, artists don't have that ability to be heard the same way. I mean, they're sure there's all this stuff on the internet, which is great, uh, and there's cable TV, which is great, and there's cable radio, and everything else. But there's nothing like getting into a car and turning on it the radio and something great comes out of there you've never heard before and it's you know you really got me by the kinks come on there's a lot of bands of that quality out there all over the world that are not getting heard because people don't know and it's hard to get through there's so much clutter and noise out in the atmosphere of of different things that you can do on, on any given day in the old days when i was started promoting shows Okay, uh, we're going to do a show. What month is this? December, end of January. And I'm going to break it tomorrow. And I'm going to buy some ads and say it's going on sale Saturday. And you're going to line up Friday night, right? And you're going to go buy a ticket Saturday. And I'm going to have an ad in the newspaper. And I'm going to hand out flyers at other shows. And I'm going to talk about that show from the stage. But that's how we promote it. And we have these radio stations that played the music. And it's probably the most important missing part of what we do as concert promoters is that of all the groups that we do, normal promoters, I mean, I don't get Lady Gaga, you know, I don't, I'm, I'm not doing Taylor Swift or Ariana, Ariana Grande, they're, they're, and they get our play, but 
one company or two companies pretty much control that level at this point. And again, no sour grapes, good for them. That's what they do. I work with a lot of really good bands and, and, and fantastic performers um, who are who are different than that. I, I'm, I'm no longer arena or stadium rock the way that I used to be. I love Guns N' Roses. I can't get a date with them. Mm. I love Journey. We're great friends. I can't get a date with them because somebody's offering them so much money that it stops me from, from being able to do the show. The important thing is they're playing. People get to see them and they're happy and, and, and we all still get to be pals. I wish I was doing the shows, by right. the way. So well, I don't blame you one bit after those you know, decades of relationships, um, especially early relationships. Look, you've just mentioned you've done over 10,000 shows. Um, what do you attribute like the key to like your successful interactions with like creative artists? Like, how do you communicate with them? Have you ever been taken to the woodshed for something that you maybe didn't didn't get right in a show? I mean, how have you built that reputation and to be able to really convey to an artist and speak their language through these years? You know, there it, it starts with respect. It starts with knowing who they are. It starts with knowing something about their music and what they do. Um, a lot of people who buy shows, and I'm not thinking of anybody in particular, but I've, I've seen it over the years. A lot of people who do shows aren't as into the music or the scene like I've been over the years, and, and that's just their way. Uh, I know a lot of promoters who are pretty bland, but they're really good at making deals. They're really good at, at working the community effort with buildings. Um, they had great staffs and people that were really into it. They didn't have to be into it. They hired people smart people who were into it. And, and these people became big guys in the business, you know, like Barry Gable and in, 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 uh, in Ohio and Bob Rue, look at Bob Rue. Bob Rue is a junior buyer at Pace and now he's the president of Live Nation Talent. I mean, you know, he's a great guy and that's why he's there. He's a smart man. Um, you know, and so is Louie and all those other guys, but it, it, it's a fascinating uh, mishmash and collection collaboration. Um, of, of ideas and thoughts that make all this happen. But the ability to speak the artist's language is important. And that's just by not being weird, not fawning all over them, not being a groupie, not bringing 60 people backstage to see them right after they get off stage. I mean, there's so many full pause you can do around a talented artist, much less a sensitive one, which many of them are. I mean, they play music for a living. They're not digging ditches. So, I mean, it, it doesn't make them anything other than, well, sensitive and, 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 and socially aware and concerned. And you got a lot of things going on because all the things that happen in their daily lives, which I guarantee is different than our daily life, ends up at two in the morning getting mishmashed into a jam in a, in a hotel room when nobody's around and something had happened and they wrote it down. It, it, it's fascinating and, 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 and loving their music, knowing how to promote them, filling a house. I mean, there's no better way than to meet somebody when they show up and your show is sold out, right. you know, or, or it's, or it's done well. And, and the staff has been there all day and they're happy and they're ready for sound check. We're ready for doors open. Boom. We got a show. Everybody goes berserk. Now what do we do? <laughs> right. You know, and, and now we stay up late. 
Right. Who's the, you know, you've run across dozens, thousands of these guys. I mean, who was like the best business guy? Like that you kind of like were always kind of like challenged by like, okay, hey, why didn't you sell that two last two seats up there on the top? So was there anyone, there had to be someone who was pretty good at business. Well, there, there's tons of them. I mean, yeah. years ago, years ago, you had guys like um, the goon. Yes. You know, Mike, Mike McGinley. Uh, I mean, he, um, but I Nick mean, as an Carter. artist themselves, like they're oh, the artist, like, well, yeah, like you well, know, Mick Jagger. He knows what's going on in the business side of that band. I mean, well, Mick Mick has a steel trap for a memory. Um, I only had met him once or twice, and very briefly. And the last time I saw him, it's been years ago. But the last time I saw him, I, somebody must have cued him. There's no way he knew my name. And it's like one of those things like you're on Veep, you know, and they go, <laughs> oh, hi, how's your wife? You know, um, you know, um, it's hard. It's hard to come up with somebody off the top of my head. Most most groups, most of the best ones have somebody that is as good at looking after them and their business as they are at making songs. And, and it's it's so necessary. I mean, even with doing you know, this book thing, there's no way I can do this alone. And it, it's, it, it, it requires effort from a number of people who, who want to gel with you and make it and make it happen. It's um, none of it's easy, but I'm not looking for any violin sections here more. Uh, I'm, I'm just saying it's like, it takes a village. I mean, it's a, it's really what it's about. Right. Well, I want to dip into something. Obviously, you know, you've been an entrepreneur for most of your career. Um, nearly four decades as an entrepreneur, right? If you take out the Live Nation part. Um, Was there ever a key moment, like a radical moment, like in your career that kind of either saved your world, almost sunk it, or you saved yourself from being sunk? Um, What are some of the challenges you faced? Is there there an example you could share? I'll give you a good one. Um, That picture on the cover of the book was... um, was from the momentary lapse of reason, Pink Floyd, um, which was the first studio album they put out after Roger left. Um, With just the three, Roger had nothing to do with the record. And um, I booked it with a guy called Mike Farrell, who's no longer with us in New York. And we, we booked the Phoenix Municipal Stadium which is a minor league ballpark for the Giants and the Athletics. I don't know. Who, I think ASU is in there now. Anyway, um, we booked the one show. It was 22,000 capacity after we added the floor seating and the uh, bleachers, temporary bleachers. And, and um, the show sold really well right out of the box. And, and there I was with maybe two or 3,000 tickets left. And about three weeks later, Mike comes back and he goes, let's do another show. And it's really not the way to do it, uh, you know. And and the demand wasn't so overwhelming, you know. As opposed to it was sold out in a minute, they had to get their stuff together, and then let's add another show. I was still selling tickets, the worst ones. Um, and and the idea was, well, we'll we'll get it all jump started again. So any and but they made me they made me buy it as a separate show. At which point I should have said. No, no. They are melted into one show. We do one settlement. You get paid X amount for both shows. And because you got all those expenses and all those advertising costs 
that promote both events. And it's like to say, all right, this is going to go to this one. Really stupid on my part. This is 1988. And I was very well seasoned already by then. I was I was actually well done by then. And um, my daughter was born that year. It was the same month as the show. And, and we got towards the very end. And my partners, who were Arnie Granite and Jess Nix, um, called me up one night together, which was rare. It was the first time. About three, four weeks before the show, and they said, did you really add a second show? I never told them. Mm. Because I thought it was a great move, and I was going to just do my thing. And, of course, I had partners. And uh, I kind of forgot that. And I thought I was making a good move. Mm. Well, uh, by the time they called me, I had only 9,000 tickets sold. And I was moving about 50 a day, which isn't good when your show's less than a month away. And they just came right out and, uh, and were barking at me about it. And I just said, do you want out? Do you want out? I don't blame you. Get out. Because I can't stand having bad vibes around me right now. There's a lot of pressure to begin with. I got a lot of tickets to sell. You're absolutely right. I should have told you. I apologize. And they go, really? I go, I'm going to sell them both out. Hmm. And I did. I hung up the phone, sweating bullets like a whore in church. <laughs> and and I, I did the only thing I could do. I went over to my stereo. I pulled out all my vinyl of Pink Floyd got myself a bottle of Bacardi and I went to work and, and I wrote a bunch of commercials and a whole ad campaign. We spent an additional $50,000 promoting both events. And in the last two days, I, you know, it was like magic. It, it, it truly was, you know, I, I came up with this line, uh, you know, how they do the, the, the voiceovers. It's like, you're going to want to be talking about this show, not hearing about it. And it worked like a charm. So we, we sold tickets at the show, and I announced from the stage before the show, you guys are going to be blown away tonight. Strap yourselves in. The box offices will remain open after the show, so you can buy another ticket for tomorrow or buy some for people that you know. We sold 7,000 tickets after the show. Wow. Out of 22,000. Saved my house. Forget about my life. I wouldn't have had a place to live. Right. It was funny. I remember just saying, you know, Z, you could lose your house over this. <laughs> you know, and, and and he was right. I mean, it, it was a it was a, it was a huge undertaking. But you're thinking, come on, it's Pink Floyd. You know, I mean, if you're gonna roll the dice with somebody, that's a great name. And uh, I was very happy the way everything worked out, and so were they, but it was really that phone call. That, that really made me focus because now not only was I up against the, the promoter wall in town here with, and, and, and up against the Pink Floyd wall with being successful, instead of saying, no, Mike, that's a terrible idea. Let's just stay with one, which I really should have done. Um, you know, I mean, that's, you know, you, you get the, Arnie used to make jokes about that. The, the answer when somebody asks you a difficult question and the answer is always yes, no, yes, no. No, yes. You know, I mean, like, I want to say no, but I'm going to say yes. You know, and, and we find ourselves just with the slip of the tongue on those two words, finding ourselves in, in some incredible situations and sometimes some tough ones. And, 
And then other times it works out just like I talked about. And, you know, we, we, we all move down the road happy together. Thanks for sharing that. That's a, a terrific example of kind of putting yourself out on an edge. Um, My blood pressure goes up every time I tell it. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, look, it's personally, financially, your relationship with your partners, relationship with a band, it's a world famous band. I mean, that's a lot of pressure. So yeah. I really appreciate you sharing that. Um, okay. I'm going to wrap this up with you. I really appreciate you taking the time, Danny. Um, everyone should find this book, All Excess Occupation Concert Promoter. It was an interesting time. These guys had a lot of influence on who came to the market, who became successful as artists. Um, and it has some great I'll stories in it. Go ahead. Before we jump off here, what I'd like to add about the book, here's a book with no real obscenities in it. There's a couple. <laughs> um, it's not about drugs and, and sordid tales of, of anybody um, because I didn't feel like I'm, I'm holding the pen. I got the typewriter here. I can write anything I want, but I want to remain friends with people. And you think about what would you not like to ever see in writing about yourself? Anything bad or anything super controversial or weird, you know, there was a moment. And, 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 and you know, in 10,000 shows, I've had some good moments. I mean, some ridiculous ones. But I, I chose to keep it pretty much down the middle uh, of, of the lane. And even going down the middle for me is like anybody else's X-rated. <laughs> um, you know, but if for, for book purposes, I didn't want it to be a sensationalistic brouhaha of things. I wanted to tell people who I got to work with and, and what happened while I worked with them and how the career and my life got to move along and who was in it to show people that you can do that too. Well, that's cool. Anybody can do this. If I did it, I'm a schmuck from Chicago and I didn't have a dime. I didn't have two cents and, and one good move here and a lucky move there and fortunate there and thinking uh, and I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but just keeping your head on um, led to uh, this career and, and and being able to share some of the stories in it. And um, so far, I mean, you know, I've, I've gotten nothing but positive reaction uh, from people, which I'm I'm really proud of and and uh, certainly happy about. Because I mean, the last thing you want to do when you book a show or put out a book is have people go. That sucks. You know, we, we can't have that. We can't have that. It's wonderful. Well, Danny, thank you. Thank you for sharing uh, your experiences. Uh, hey, and if anybody's thinking about it, Nick, it's dzplive.com. Yeah, dude, I'll link, I'll link to it all on my website. I, I know you will, but I, I, promise like, you. I, just like, I just like the way it sounds. Okay, <laughs> I'll let you say it. Dude, thank you for doing this. I'm really grateful. Please stay healthy. Um, and I hope you get back in the saddle next year with some live music. So. I can't wait. Yes, sir. Thank you, Danny. Hey, everybody. Thanks for listening this week. To follow what's going on with this podcast, you can go to theradicalpod.com. Theradicalpod.com. You will find show notes and past episodes and uh, even a little swag there if you want a T-shirt or a hat. I would be honored if you'd subscribe at Apple or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Till next week. <laughs>